welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And today we're going to be talking about how the swamp goes deeper than fake news reports. And yes, I'm talking about the D.C. swamp. And um, I think you will be rather surprised at some of the things that we're going to be talking about. In the first half hour, um, my guest is John O'Connor. He is the author of a book called Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. And they are still at it, as are others, um, as we will compare Deep Throat and um, uh, Mr. O'Connor's representation of Deep Throat, Mark Felt, and um, then come up to the present and look at the, uh, the current headlines, which are Durham indictment is bad news for mainstream media on Steele dossier reporting. So the media has not learned, then there are going to be some interesting uh, uh, comparisons and differences as John O'Connor, who, by the way, is a practicing attorney in San Francisco uh, in both state and federal court, he served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California from 1974 to 1979, representing the United States in both criminal and civil cases, and very high-profile cases like Patricia Hearst and so on. So, welcome to the show, John. Oh, uh, good to be with you, Carol. Okay, so... Um, Let's start first with Watergate and Deep Throat and your representation of him. Uh, if you can give us a remind people, or for those who you know weren't didn't know much about it then, um, if you can give an introduction to that. Yep. Here's what Watergate was about essentially. The Nixon administration was very concerned about national security leaks from the White House and other places that uh, hindered them in the uh, Vietnam War uh, pursuit, trying to end it. There was great opposition to it by the late 1960s, early 70s, and they're trying to settle the matter without great public fear and without the public forcing them into a weak settlement. The long and short of it is, during all this time, the... uh, when this, when all this uh, storm was going on, there was a burglary at the Democratic National Committee. Uh, several people were caught. There appeared to be a connection to the Nixon White House and the Nixon campaign. The Nixon White House said, we don't know what this is about. It's not a campaign operation. Uh, but it looks suspicious because one of the guys on the burglary team was with the uh, committee to reelect the president, another supervisor was a White House consultant, both of them formerly with the CIA. And uh, the scandal appeared to be at a low boil. Most people didn't think it was very important, even though they thought that Nixon's people were probably involved. Uh, then suddenly the thing exploded when my client, Mark Felt, went to the garage with Woodwork 
with Woodward. And um, he was worried, my client was worried, that the investigation was being needlessly circumscribed by orders from the White House uh, and limited only to the burglary and not to other crimes. So he wanted to make sure the FBI was not part of a whitewash. He then uh, gave Woodward some information. Woodward published some splashy stories, and everything changed from that point on. And, and far more uh, skullduggery was uh, uncovered, I would say. Now, um, here's the interesting takeaway. First of all, at that time, the regular mainstream media was pretty much trusted by the public. Even though everybody knew the Post was kind of a liberal paper, most of the mainstream media was pretty straight on its coverage of the news. Uh, that's one thing. Now, also, Mark Felt wanted to do what he did to keep the FBI from being politicized. He didn't think the FBI should have any part in politics. And if this investigation was being needlessly circumscribed by politics, he didn't want that to happen. Now, as it turns out, Nixon got uh, caught on process crimes. He had uh, he got bad advice. He had told uh, the CIA to tell the FBI to lay off investigating uh, the money trail leading to the burglary, and that was his main the main thing he did wrong. He also talked about paying off a burglar to keep to keep quiet, uh, and that was enough. Uh, and it was very widely publicized and very exciting for the country in many ways, both negative and positively. It was very much of what they called a national nightmare. That was Watergate, and that's what started the whole idea of investigative reporting. Up to this point, so-called investigative reporting was only done by what they called muckbreakers, people who, who were almost considered a bit slimy and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, like the National Enquirer, kind of uh, not quite... Um, uh, respectable. Now, all of a sudden, everyone who wanted to go into, uh, uh, everyone who wanted to change the world went into to journalism and became a, um, uh, became an investigative journalist, which really means a, um, a prosecuting journalist. Um, so, uh, excuse me for the no noise in the background. I will get away from the noise. But what happened was, is that now, uh, journalism turned into be sort of a gotcha thing, a targeting thing. Uh, the country loved the scandal, uh, the idea of scandal, and so everybody loved the idea of a gate. After that, we had Iran-Contra gate, we had Monica gate, we had this gate and that gate. Now, where are we today? Now, so that was about a straight FBI, a previously straight uh, uh, media that is now turning to more salacious stuff, to becoming more investigative and prosecutorial. And now we get up well, to the present I, day. Sure. Well, before we go to the present, wait, before we go to the present day, I just want to ask you, what was it like uh, representing Felt? Because, you know, his, his identity, he, he never revealed his identity. I mean, I guess it was you who revealed it. Is that right, ultimately? Right. And I did this. I knew I, I knew all along. I figured out who Mark Felt was back in 1976 when I was an assistant prosecutor. I said, it has to be Felt. And it wasn't until 2002 that I realized that I was good friends with his grandson, his, who went to school with my daughter at Stanford. So I said, sure. Nick, let me come up and talk to your grandfather. I think I know what pushes his buttons. 
and why he, sh- he is not talking and why he should talk. Because I think what he did was very straight and very heroic. And that's how this started. Now, at the time, I thought the Washington Post was in, in Watergate was the epitome of good reporting. It seemed very factual. It seemed very fair. Even though it hurt one party, it had a lot of credibility to it. And everybody attaches credibility to that reporting. Now, it's a long story between 2002 and 2021. But as I got into this even deeper, I realized, and I had my go-rounds with the Post and with Woodward, I realized they were hiding something, Carol. And I couldn't figure it out, uh, what they were hiding and what they were so worried about on certain things I wanted to write in a book I was writing. And I did more research, and I did very deep research, and I have all the 3,000 Post articles back in Watergate when the Post made its name. It was a second-tier rag at the time. Watergate propelled it into its present lofty perch as one of the best newspapers (laughs) in America. Uh, So I began looking at things and realized that they had really put their thumb on the scale during Watergate and had not told the truth to the public. And that is where... I come up with this. Now, um, we had a lot of fun when I finally convinced Mark he should come out and tell his story. Uh, It was very good for him. And in a way, it was very good for the country because had he not done so, Woodward would have described him in ways that were unfavorable. Why? Because the press today... uh, doesn't like uh, the old line FBI, the old, the regular conservative law and order FBI. They don't like that. And I think Woodward was always planning on sort of stabbing his uh, source in the back, really. And he sort of did Mm. so in his book that he came out with after, uh, after I came out with Mark and we revealed who he was. So we had sort of competing and dueling versions of who Mark Felt was and why he did what he did. Many people still don't understand why Deep Throat did what he did. He did it for purposes of the incorruptibility of the FBI. That was his main goal. It wasn't to get Nixon. He actually kind of liked Nixon. It wasn't to play games. It wasn't to be political. It was just the opposite. It was to be non-political. He thought the FBI should not get engaged in politics. And it was veering that way because the White House had had his boss circumscribe the investigation and limited only to the burglary. So there was a fundamental debate that I sort of had with the Post and when I it made me do my research. Now in my book, I talk about how really the Post was extremely dishonest in Watergate. And here's my take, Carol. Anytime the media only tells part of the story because they're, quote, investigative or really prosecutorial, they necessarily commit fraud. And let me give you an example. If you come to me and say, John, I want to buy the back 40 of this farm you've got. I want to plant alfalfa. Is you, do you have water? And I say, I've got plenty of water at 20 feet. You can drill it. Any time year-round, you got plenty of water. You say, okay, I'll buy your land. Well, I omitted the minor fact that the water that uh, is in the well is toxic. It's been, uh, it's, it, 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 it has some uh, toxins in it. And, and that's fraud. Not telling somebody something mm-hmm. that is of material importance is fraud. And, and that's right. what the SEC is all about. So 
that's what I claim to be the lesson of Watergate for today's journalists is they think it's okay to commit fraud. They don't call it fraud. They don't think it's fraud, Mm. but they omit little details like, well, gee, Hunter Biden had a laptop and here's what he said on it. So those little Uh tiny little bits of things lead to a practice of deceit. And so we now have a media that is deceitful. But there are other lessons from this. Because of Watergate, everyone who went to journalism school was trying to change the world. If you are trying to change the world, you only change it. You're not a conservative because conservatives don't want to change the world. They want to slightly reform it, uh, fine-tune it, but not radical change. They want to stick to enlightenment principles upon which the country was founded. So what we have is we have a natural leftist slant to the media. And so only left only the leftist targets of conservatives are good targets. If 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 uh, a lefty does something wrong, well, they get a pass. If Hillary Clinton decides she's going to sell a good portion of uh, our country's uranium to Vladimir Putin for 150 million dollars, mm-hmm. that's nothing that the press is really interested in. And to this day, mm-hmm. nobody said much about it, and yet. It's a very nuclear power is a very clean source of power, but we actually have uh, nuclear facilities in this country who buy their power, their uranium from Vladimir Putin. Nobody says anything about it, mm. but mm. that's mm. an example of why the media bias is so important. The public does not get the real truth in this. Really, what it is, it's politicized reporting. Now, now right. we have an environment where you have politicized reporting. Now what happens if you're in the FBI? You, you realize, as James Comey did, that, gee, and he's sort of a Democrat. He posed as a Republican. He's really a Democrat. He realized he could get very far if he used the media to make himself look good, to pick the right targets. And pretty soon we have a politicized FBI that I don't think yeah. would have been politicized had it not been for a willing media that will portray him and his doings in a way that he thinks is favorable to him. So we have a lot Mm -hmm. of people acting one way because of the way the media is going to treat them. So let's talk about uh, the current Russian issue and what the media has done for that. Well, in, in the current deal, You will see in all the uh, Durham indictments so far, at least a couple of them, uh, the Sussman indictment and and then the Danchenko indictment, one of the motives, the main motive for all of this skullduggery of coming up with this phony Russiagate charge, that is to say that Trump colluded with Russia, the whole idea was for media effect. Yes, Hillary Clinton wanted the FBI to open investigations on Trump. She didn't care if they were successful. She cared that they had an investigation so she could leak it to the press that Trump was all Russianed up, that he was in in bed with Vladimir Putin. That would have the effect of not only tarring uh, Trump, but would take the uh, focus off her email problems, which in turn go back to this uranium sale. That's probably why she destroyed her emails, because she was getting 150 million bucks for her different dealings in the State Department. So she wanted focus Mm -hmm. off these dealings. So ironically enough, what the recent indictments show is, 
and this is amazing, that one of the sources for Danchenko, first of all, Danchenko was the main source for uh, Christopher Steele, and who, who in turn was to get information from his subsources. One of the main subsources that had one of the most explosive allegations against Donald Trump was a Clinton person, was a Clinton campaign uh, uh, a person named Charles Dolan. And he is feeding stuff to Danchenko, and they're publishing it as if it is come straight from the Kremlin's mouth, that, oh, there's this conspiracy. Well, it really came from Clinton. And the indictment also shows that the Clinton people were in bed with the Russians. Uh, this guy, Charles Dolan, was meeting with Russian diplomats constantly while he was doing that. Diplomats, as we all know, uh, in the Russian embassy also double as spies. Uh, that's their job. We all know that. They're intelligence agents of some sort or another. They're either an intelligence agent or close to intelligence agents. So he is working, the Clinton administration is working hand in glove with Russian intelligence people. Danchenko himself was investigated as a Russian spy uh, for a couple of years by the FBI. Christopher Steele, who wrote the report, his main client for the last 15 years has been a fellow named Oleg Deripaska, who's the number one oligarch in Russia and Putin's good buddy. So all these guys, so the irony of this is that really it was the Clinton campaign that was <laughs> colluding for electoral advantage with Russians. And this latest indictment is stunning because here it is. The charge was that tr Trump was colluding with the Russians. And now what happens is with a willing media, and a media that will believe anything as long as it's about, especially about Donald Trump, who the media hates, but as, and, and of course, uh, against conservatives. Oh, Trump is tied up with the Russians. Trump, Trump is a Putin stooge. Well, in fact, it's Hillary and her campaign that was colluding with Russians. And none of it could happen without first a very politicized FBI. Now, all of a sudden, the, uh, not all of a sudden, but over the years, the FBI has become politicized. Exactly what the opposite of what happened in Watergate. And rather than fighting corruption, the FBI was part of it. There will be probably, Carol, four or five FBI agents indicted by Durham at some point for knowingly defrauding the FISA court and getting these warrants. So the FBI was in it. It wouldn't have happened without a, a willing, complicit media. And uh, so we have the Clinton campaign, Russians, the FBI, and the media are there to go after Donald Trump. You know, here's a guy, whether you like him or hate him, Donald Trump is just a guy. He's a citizen. He's a wealthy citizen, but he's a guy who decides he's going to run for president. He's not really practiced in the ways of Washington. We all know that. And here these forces are arrayed mm -hmm. against them. It is really a pretty scary thing. Uh, now, he may not be... Jimmy Stewart, you know, uh, he may not be the perfect <laughs> Mr. Clean, but by gosh, I mean, <laughs> everyone deserves a fair break. I don't think uh, he really got one. He was mired in this Russiagate thing for years, and the act exact opposite, the exact opposite of the charges were mm -hmm. what was actually true. Uh, while everyone's mm -hmm. talking about Rachel Maddow gets on the, her show and says, oh, Trump and Putin are going to turn off the power in North Dakota. Well, not exactly, Rachel. Um, so mm -hmm. that's what we have. I think a lot of people on the left and the media really believe this stuff. They want to believe it. I'm not saying everyone's uh, crooked. I'm saying the, the, the idea, the, the, the partisanship 
and the credulity uh, and the whole idea of the herd mentality means that many people that are innocent in the media, if, if you want to get along, you go along. Uh, so there you are. Uh, and that's the world we live in. And it's very scary because, as the Washington Post masthead says, democracy dies in darkness. Nobody could say it better than the Washington Post. We will not have a democracy if the public cannot get the truth out of the media. And if the media is part yeah. and parcel of this thing, if they hide the Hunt and Biden laptop story, if they conspire with the Post to try to get Michael Flynn indicted, which is what they did, they're in it. The media is a player now. They're not just a, a, a reporter out there, a, a reporting vehicle. They like to be behind the velvet rope. They like to be a real inside player, and that's what's happening now. Yes, it is, and it is ruining the country um, because, you know, people get up in the morning, they turn on television, they have television on for countless hours every day, especially since uh, we've spent so much time this past year and a half in lockdown, um, and they just tend to believe everything that they see and hear and, or on the Internet, same thing. Right, and, and what happens very, is the media... Like, all- it's just propaganda, it's propaganda being played again and again. And, you know, I mean, I remember, for example, um, Trump has been saying since the beginning, um, you know, no, these about these various Russian uh, um, charges, you know, c- uh, claims, uh, including being in a hotel room, <laughs> allegedly, with a prostitute, right? That was the most uh, kind, of, kind of similar to Deep Throat, right? <laughs> right, um, exactly. Sex, sex always sells. Um, but anyhow, he's been saying, you know, for years now um, that, that that wasn't true and, and none of this was true. And nobody wanted to believe him. I mean, not nobody, but, you know, the, the, the mainstream media didn't want to believe him because, um, well, because they wanted to tarnish him and because that made a lot more sensational reporting. Well, that's right. And one of the things the media does, it not only slants the news and, and commits fraud, as I described, but they also try to shame the mainstream media shames anybody who does not go along with them. So for example, if, as in my case, I've read 20 books on climate change, many articles, there is something to the carbon dioxide thing, but it's a very small effect on the environment. It is nothing, nothing to rattle your teacup over. And, you know, uh, but if you say that public, Oh, you're a climate denier. Or if you say something that's conservative, oh, you're a Trumper, you must like Trump. Or you're even worse now today, you're a white supremacist. If you vote for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, oh, you must be a white supremacist because, you know, those are dog whistles. Everything's a dog whistle. So what's happening right. is, Carol, is, and you're a psychiatrist, you would understand that the uh, shame is a big weapon here. Anyone who has a certain view is to be shamed. So people are even afraid to talk to pollsters about what they believe. Uh, in my view, yeah. 60 or 70 percent of the country has fairly moderate, I would call moderate views, you know, somewhere, you know, in the mainstream. But people are afraid to say that. People are afraid to do anything about it because, oh, they're going to get shamed if they say something. If they say, well, I, I don't think it's good in our classrooms to teach our kids that white people are evil and should be ashamed. I don't think that's a good thing to teach people. I don't think we should talk about races as having inherent racial characteristics as opposed to what Martin Luther King said, where the individual is what's important. All of these things, if you say something like that, 
you're a white supremacist. I don't think so. Right. But it is very difficult for regular people now to conduct their regular American life with this feeling of freedom. It's almost like, and I hate to say the analogy, but if you're living in the Soviet Union or Germany in the past or any place where there's a totalitarian leadership, people watch what they say. They're afraid the secret police are going to yes. come and get them. You know, and yes, so we're yes. kind of getting there. It's a little softer than that. Well, I don't want to be extreme I, I, about well, it. The the um, you know a current a good current example you started to uh, allude to it you know, the fact that now uh, well first of all the fact that uh, anybody who doesn't agree with the Biden administration um, is a domestic terrorist I mean you know the, of course the January sixth people but just in now parents if you dare to speak up in a PTA meeting or a school board meeting you're a domestic terrorist and the FBI and other um, policing organizations are allowed to arrest you like we just saw. That's right. That's right. Uh, and so uh, that's where we're getting. Everybody is getting shamed. And that was the whole idea of what Biden did there with the teachers union, the school board association, is to try to get parents to shut up. And yet the very essence of America is being able to go to your local meetings and, and petition the government for redress of grievances. This is exactly what people are doing. It's in the First Amendment. Our right is to uh, peaceably assemble and petition our government. And when people do that, now all of a sudden they're domestic terrorists. I mean, this has really gotten bad. I mean, the whole idea of the Equal Protection Clause, the civil rights laws, and so forth and so on, is not to discriminate on the basis of race. And yet now we have things taught in school that we're teaching kids to discriminate on the basis of race. This is an upside-down yes. world, Carol, and it's not healthy for any of us. Uh, let's Absolutely. have our discussions out there and let's, let's, uh, let's uh, talk with each other and have good associations with one another and uh, act as, uh, uh, as one, one nation, even with, you know, with, division is fine. Debates are fine. That's what... The country's supposed to be about it. It's supposed to encourage debate and discussion. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, thank you so much, John O'Connor. Again, I mentioned the name of the book. Um, I'm sure you've sparked people's interest. It's called Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. I mean, that's really interesting what you're talking about, about people going, those people going to journalism school, and now that explains, now that explains it, at least in part, for why, uh, why the media, some of the media, the mainstream media is the way it is. Well, thank you so much um, for sharing all of your insights with us. Well, Carol, it's been, it's been a blast, and uh, the, the more we talk, uh, the better we are as a, as a country, and so it's just great, your show. I'm a fan of your show, and keep it up, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, take care now. Well, All right, well, see you. You too. Now I'm going to take a break. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. We're going to continue uh, in the second half of the show, and um, stay tuned. We're talking today about The Swamp Goes Deeper, than fake news reports. So stay tuned. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? 
Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about the swamp goes deeper than fake news reports. And I'm happy to bring to you Peter Navarro, who is going to be talking. Well, first of all, he is the author of a new book that's already uh, already a best on its way to being a bestseller. It's called In Trump Time: A Journal of America's Plague Year. Um, Peter Navarro is the former assistant to President Trump and the director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy. And uh, so he, <laughs> if anyone has the inside scoop. Um, it is he. He is the one. <laughs> so, um, Peter, I wanted to, I, we have, I mean, your book obviously covers a whole lot of things, but I thought we would talk about perhaps first um, what, you, what you write about Fauci, uh, calling him a so- sociopath, and, um, and then in the second half of, the, of this half hour, um, talking about the... Um, um, talking about January 6th and, ha- and well, and Mike Pence being the brutus. Um, yes. Sure. So before, the, uh, before we got on, I was telling you that I am a dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporter and uh, in many different capacities. And um, one of them that you might have seen, uh, yes, just so you know you're on friendly her- territory, one of them that you might have seen is um, I was on Laura Ingram revealing that um, Trump's niece, who wrote the book, um, was not a licensed psychologist. Did you happen to see that? Oh, interesting. Yeah, busted, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. That's good. I was yeah. very, you know, as a psychiatrist, obviously, I was very interested in all of her credentials. And, uh, yes, so yeah. that was bu- bust- she was busted on, on Laura Ingram. 
So let's go to now your book and um, and uh, and uh, um, and and Fauci. <laughs> I'm stumbling over my words. I so so about. <laughs> yeah. Let me. Um, so so I'm not licensed as a psychologist, but let me put him <laughs> on your couch. Um, yes, he's yeah. a sociopath, uh, but he's also a narcissist. Uh, and that's a very dangerous combination. And, and for your listeners, let me um, put you in in the room in, at the White House, which I like to do. And so let me take you in Chapter 2 uh, of the In Trump Time book into the iconic Situation Room where it's January 28, 2020. President Trump has dispatched me early in the uh, pandemic to make the case to a recalcitrant task force uh, that uh, he should pull down the travel flights from communist China. Okay, January 28, 2020. So I walk into the room with that mission, and um, I see a bunch of people who who I know I'm going to have a fight with, um, Mulvaney, acting chief of staff, he's on the other side of this. I got one of Pompeo's hacks on my left shoulder. The 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 Orville Redenbacher doppelganger, that would be Dr. Robert Redfield, the C- bumbling CDC director who would screw up the testing <laughs> so badly shortly. And then there was uh, the preening Alex Azar, the secretary of health and human services. I knew I was going to have trouble with them, but there's this little guy sitting across from me with these little round glasses at high noon, and it would become symbolic shortly because I would immediately get into an argument with him. And as I was arguing for the travel ban, he kept saying over and over again, travel bans don't work. And I'm thinking to myself, like Butch the Sundance, like, who is this guy? Didn't know he was a saint, didn't know he walked on water. And at one point I say, dude, actually called St. Fauci, dude. I said, dude, it's like, you mean to tell me if there's 20,000 Chinese nationals flying in every day on gleaming airliners into LAX and Kennedy and O'Hare and Dulles, and many of them are from Wuhan, China, many of them lit up like a Christmas tree with the virus, you're telling me that it's prudent to allow those people to come in? And he just goes, travel bans don't work in his Brooklyn accent, right? And so it's like, uh, I'm just like, wow, this guy is just... So the meeting, interestingly enough, uh, Mulvaney at the end of the table, uh, despite the the argument in the room, declares, well, there's a consensus in uh, in the room that that we're, we're against the travel ban. I go, no, 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 no. It's like... There's no consensus in here. So the meeting erupts in chaos. I wound up writing what would become a very historical document. It's a memo. Think about this. The memo, Carol, says, uh, uh, I write this on January 29th. It says that if we don't act on the pandemic swiftly, over half a million Americans would die, and the virus would cost us trillions of dollars, okay, which, of course, is exactly... What happened? Now, here's the most uh-huh. important thing about the narcissist sociopath Fauci. Okay, let's think about this. I'm in the room on January 28th. Uh, <clears throat> I know that that friggin' virus came from the lab. I mean, it was yards from the lab. 
it, 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 come on, where else would it come from, right? right. Fauci knew that it was from Wuhan. He knew that it, the, the virus itself surfaced within yards of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But here's what Fauci also knew that he didn't tell us. He knew that his agency had funded the very gain-of-research experiment that likely could have given birth to this Frankenstein virus. And he had been told by a prominent scientist in his orb that this thing was genetically engineered. So what Fauci did is not only lie to Congress, lie to Rand Paul, and that's enough to be in an orange jumpsuit. The bigger lie was the lie of omission. If Fauci had simply come clean at that point and let us know that this thing may well have come from that lab, may well be a bioweapon genetically engineered, everything would have changed. We would have focused our strategy dead on communist China, got them to release the, the original genome to the virus, which we still don't have. We would have fought the fight faster and more efficiently uh, and had a better vaccine. Uh, but Fauci didn't do that. Now, this, here's, here's why he's a sociopath. What did he do instead? He used, and I described this guy in the interim time book as, as the dumbest guy who ever tried to play God, Right. This is a guy named Peter Daszak. Everybody in America needs to know his name. Prior to the pandemic, I have him in the In Trump Time book speaking words along the following lines. Well, you take a bad virus and you just inject this little some material into it, the backbone of the virus, and sure enough, you can turn it into something that kills humans. I mean, he's actually saying that yeah. on TV, like bragging about it and bragging about how he, it was not being done by him, but by his colleagues in where? Huh? China. Okay? So yeah. Jasek is the yeah. guy who would go on to make the case on behalf of Fauci that the, the virus came from the bat cave a thousand miles away from nature rather than from the lab. So this was an elaborate cover-up based on Fauci's behavior. And, and the irony, of course is that he would become the St. Fauci lording all over us with lockdowns, masks, universal vaccine yes. mandates, taking away hydroxychloroquine from the ability of physicians yes. to prescribe it, and doing all manner of things to wreck both the economy and kill Americans. He needs to be out of government and in a jail cell. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I had, I don't know, a month or two or three ago, I started a website, pleasefirefauci.com. <laughs> and I have a, a funny story to tell you. Um, once upon a time, you know, several years ago, I was working for Lifetime Medical Television. I was uh, uh, doing all kinds of things. One of them was being a producer. And so it was my job to call different doctors to be on the air for different kinds of shows. And when it was anything having to do with respiratory diseases, they would want me to call Fauci. I mean, he was pretty, he had a prominent position back then. And, um, and so I would call Fauci. And every time I called him, he would say yes. And, you know, the people were really impressed. Oh, you got him again? You got him again? <laughs> no. Now we know that he's a narcissist. Now yeah, we yeah, know yeah. that it Give me that microphone. Yeah. 
it wasn't my uh, uh, powers of persuasion. <laughs> it was, yeah, that he, he would be on anything, anytime, anywhere. So, um, you know, in case, yeah. so I support your, your diagnosis of him. Now, here's a question. I can, mean, hey, he, he I has been doing one, this. Let me tell you, Karen, let me tell you a little funny story from the book itself. Um, because um, one of the things the book does is, is illustrate how quickly President Trump was moving. So, so on, on February 9th, 2020, I'm, I'm in my office, and uh, on behalf of the president, it's very early in the pandemic, I write a memo uh, that says that uh, we can have a vaccine, get this, by October or November of that year if we moved in Trump time which is to say as quickly as possible. And as you know, we hit that mark. Now, here's the funny part of the story. I go on TV and say that. And the next thing I know, uh, I, I'm, I, I have, I'm watching in the morning this, this the awful show New Day on CNN just to see what the enemy's up to. And Maggie Haberman's on there with John Berman. And they start dumping all over me. It's like, yeah, getting Navarro off the air. He's saying crazy stuff. Hmm. And then we need more Fauci, right? Hmm. And I, I was, like, stunned by that because Haberman's usually better than that. Um, but I run this to ground, and it turns out that Fauci's people were the ones who motivated that. And it was all about getting me off the air so he could, he could be unfettered Fauci and get on and do that. That's the kind of crap uh-huh. Fauci pulled uh-huh. uh, in addition to the, along the way to killing Americans. But I thought, I thought it was pretty instructive early on that, that he, he would play yes. in those kind of games to hug the camera. Yes. I mean, you know, yes, he's doing this to hug the camera. He's doing this because he's making half a million dollars a year that we know of, plus all the rest that he's getting from the vaccine manufacturers. But do you think, uh, one thing that, that we haven't heard about, uh, or I haven't heard about, what do you think that in addition to his own um, glory and, and so on and financial rewards, that um, he has some other interest in regard to China? I mean, do you think that there's a reason, like, are they paying him? Is there some connection that for some reason that he wants China to uh, to be more powerful than the U.S.? Uh I think uh, with Fauci, it's more of, of hubris, and maybe as a doc, you can you can diagnose that whether hubris is a is a psychological problem. But Fauci, when he wrote about what he was doing uh, with his gain of function experiments, I mean, let's be clear: the gain of function experiments transform a harmless bat virus into something that just can flat out kill you. Right? It's like you are playing right. both with fire and God when you do those kinds of experiments. But Fauci's logic in doing that was, hey, if we can create a bunch of dangerous viruses we think might one day emerge from nature, and in the meantime invent a bunch of vaccines that can can kill those viruses, then Mm -hmm. we will have done something great for mankind, right? That's the hubris. That's the playing God part. Now, here's, here's the two problems, right? The underlying assumption, there's two underlying assumptions of Fauci when he, when he plays God like that. And this is all hubris. One is that bioweapons, P4 high-grade weapons labs never leak. Okay? That is, the virus would never escape. You could conduct these uh-huh. experiments and, and, and there would be no problem. And, 
that, that is just so counterfactual. I mean, that, that's like that's 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 hub, hubris and idiocy uh, there. But the other thing, which is interesting, that he assumes when you're when you're laying down with with uh, with the Communist Chinese Party in Wuhan. It never appears to occur to him that the communist Chinese military in the basement of that, that lab might like developing these killer viruses to use them as a bioweapon. Never occurs to him. Mm-hmm. And so we get what we get. Do you, so, do you really think you really think that it didn't I mean that it didn't occur to him that it was more naivete or ignorance or something else, not um collusion or I don't know. I I can't I can't imagine. I, look, I, I'm I'm in Washington D.C. I run into people every day of my life here who who don't see communist China as anything but a cash cow. They don't see it as an existential threat. Meanwhile, you know they're bombing aircraft carrier likenesses in the desert. They're flying hypersonic. Uh, vehicle planes around in low orbit with, equipped with nuclear weapons. They're hacking our computers every day. I mean, I've written three books on China, the trilogy, including one on their military. Yeah. Like, I don't know what was in Fauci's head, but here's what I do know. The man is responsible for all of the deaths that have occurred. If for no other reason, then he was not forthcoming Initially, the lie of omission, he didn't tell us that the virus likely came from that lab and was a likely bioweapon. That, that alone, and his, right there, is yes, enough to put him in jail, strip him of his wealth. Absolutely, and, and, and persisted to this day, still trying to deny it. I mean, how, you know, how he thinks that we are all that stupid, that we're just going to keep believing this with all the things that have been coming out. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, yes, he definitely believe, belongs in jail. I've, I've been talking about how he is, has been the voice and face of gloom and doom, which in another way has been killing people because that stress, his stress, um, has weakened our immune system and made us more vulnerable yes. to catching COVID. Yes. Yes, um, the, the um, you know when I was working, there was a great character in the In Trump Time book, Doctor Stephen Hatfield, and he was my my chief medical advisor when I was writing those February memos about what to do about uh, vaccine, what to do about therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine, and we we knew um, early on that the vaccine would be leaky and non durable, that there would be mutations. Hatfield. By the way, the audio edition of the, the In Trump Time book is priceless, um, not because I narrated it, which I did, but because I used a lot of voices from characters in the, uh, the In Trump Time book. And so Hatfield has this, this extended riff on how viruses are clever little beasts. Uh, their goal isn't, isn't to kill you, but to spread themselves. So... So they're, they, they, an efficient virus is not like Ebola, which, which kills everybody immediately and can't spread. It's like the one like we're seeing now that can constantly mutate. And Hatfield describes as what we're in in the In Trump Time book as a war of attrition. And so one of the things that in order to fight that war, we, we need these um, therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine. The longest chapter in the In Trump Time book 
is a homage to Perry Mason's the scurrilous case of hydroxyhysteria. It's a story about how the left-wing media and Fauci turned a safe and effective drug uh, against uh-huh. COVID infection into something that people thought would kill you. And it's the stupidest, stupidest thing ever because people, a lot of people have died and will continue to die because of hydroxyhysteria. Yes, who could have been saved if they got hydroxychloroquine yes. in the first three yes. days of symptoms. Yes. No question about no. it. Now, listeners, take that to the bank. Science has proven now beyond any shadow of a doubt, can't hurt you if you take it under a physician's care. If you do take hydroxy in the first seven days of your infection, more moderate symptoms, fewer days in the hospital if you had to go, less likely you'll be on a ventilator, and it pretty much takes death off the table. Yes. Uh, of course, you'll be you'll be canceled from uh, Twitter and, and Facebook and all of the rest if you all talk right. about those <laughs> things, but yes. I know. They're killing people. You know, the AG of Nebraska just came out with a ruling which allows personal physicians to prescribe off-label for COVID without fear of persecution and prosecution. And what was interesting about it is uh, the um, bureaucracy supported that decision in Nebraska with a beautifully written uh, report, which, as the In Trump Time book reports, uh, shows all the scientific evidence of, about how this drug uh, can can really help you. So depending on what state your listeners are listening to this in, um, find out a way that, that you can get hydroxy or ivermectin uh, before you get sick so that if you have to, uh, you won't yes. have to struggle to find it. Because you only got a few days once you get an infection to take it, otherwise it won't work. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that's been really incredibly frustrating to me besides uh, Fauci's, you know, psychological, his personality disorder, sociopath and narcissist and everything, histrionic and everything else, um, is that besides having an MD as a psychiatrist, I have a master's in public health, and um, particularly in public health campaigns. And one of the things that I learned in Public Health 101 that apparently Fauci never took was if you have some kind of a public health emergency or issue like, like COVID, what you do is you give people positive steps to take. You don't them to death, but instead you give them yes. uh, a positive pop plan, and um, that, oh. ha- that has not happened, and, um, you know, it's really, um, it, it's really devastating. I mean, they're really, he has liter- literally killed people in all of these different ways, you know, and so why is he still walking around? Why hasn't he been um, arrested? The um, In Trump Time book Our describes fire. the basic strategy of, of, of the Democrats, and it was to blame Donald Trump for the pandemic. Now, in order to do that, two things had to happen. You had to make sure you didn't blame communist China, and then you had to have a foil for the president, somebody who the public admired and respected, who could criticize the president, uh, and do it in, in what I talk about in the In Trump Time book in kind of a passive-aggressive kind of aw-shucks way. And that's what the, 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 the sociopath, uh-huh. narcissist, 
passive-aggressive Fauci would constantly do at the daily <laughs> briefings when he was on TV. It's like, I don't want to say anything but. It was like, I don't want to say anything but. Yes. And so the reward for Fauci basically helping the Democrats make the election close enough to steal was to elevate him as Biden's chief advisor. And uh, that's what you know, the In Trump Time book recognizes that chessboard. But we have to understand right now uh, that Fauci, uh, his approval rating was in probably in excess of 70% at the height of pa- the pandemic. You know, people thought he was God. Right now, that thing's in the toilet. It's somewhere between Biden yeah. and Kamala Harris in the 20s. <laughs> yeah. and, and more than half of the people yeah. don't trust him. At some point, they should have figured this out already. Fauci is a liability to the administration. There's tremendous backlash against the mandates, the mass mandates, the universal vax mandates. And yeah. Fauci is, is that messenger. And it's not helping the Biden regime in terms of their support publicly. I mean, one of the reasons why the, 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 the Virginia is elected a Republican government, that, that, yes. that was as much a, a referendum on, on Fauci as, as it was on Biden um, uh-huh. and, and Trump. And guess, guess what? Trump won, Fauci and Biden lost. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be even lower. His, uh, Fauci's approval ratings would be even lower, but a lot of people don't want to admit to themselves that they believed in him and they followed his advice. You know, they don't want to feel like stupid sheep, right? Otherwise, there would, they, there would be even more yeah. people admitting it. Is, it, well, is, that a, is, is there a name for that in, in psychology? Is, is there a name for that in psychology? <laughs> well, there's denial. Like Stockholm know, Syndrome um, or something? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'll have to think about that one. Our time is unfortunately yeah. up. I hope you will come back closer to January 6th to talk about the Mike Pence as Brutus story. Um, and I want to just uh, mention, well, of course, of course, the main book, the current book, In Trump Time, A Journal of America's Plague Year. Fascinating, required reading, really. Uh, and also I wanted to mention the other books that you wrote, you wrote Death by China, the coming China wars. Um, so really, you, you, your background in this, you know, stems from even before, before Fauci, you were um, already an expert on China. So thank you so much yes, uh, for being on the show. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.